alcohol and uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast, Pole and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 32nd episode of Polcast. Today you were here... Part two of our interview with a Canadian-Polish photographer-author who had unprecedented access to women's prisons in Afghanistan. More about famous Poles, but this time not ones that we can be proud of. And about a unique underground organization helping the Jews in German-occupied Poland during World War II. Dan's grandparents came to Canada from Poland after the war and his parents were born here. He has recently married Natalia, who came to Canada from Poland. They have known each other for four years. So, so how is it to um, to live with a pole? Interesting. She's pretty stubborn at times. Kind of, it's funny because she kind of reminds me a little bit of my grandmother, where she used to always be like, "Do you want milk? No, it's okay. You sure you don't want milk? No, 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 I'm fine. No, you're having milk. Oh, okay." <laughs> she was just amazed with all the animals and everything like that, and especially the skunk. The first time she smelled that, that was really funny. <laughs> We drove by and she's like, oh my god, I'm going to smell like a skunk for the rest of the day now. It's like, no, that's not how it works. So I had to explain that to her. I don't have so many Polish friends, but she does. And it's <laughs> whenever she's talking to them on Skype or something like that, I swear it sounds like they're going to kill each other because they're just always yelling and it sounds so angry. I'm like, is everything okay? Yeah, we're just talking about the weather. Okay. <laughs> In Poland, I thought it was really weird that they actually stop at a crosswalk when the hand comes up. Over here, I find, like, even driving around, the second that hand starts blanking, you see all these people running across the street in Poland. That hand comes up and everybody stopped. I remember I stepped down and I was like, what are you doing? You can't cross now. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I found that a lot of them are very proud to be Polish, too. Like, even Natalia, we go over to Starsky's and she's always like, we got to get the Polish kielbasa. We got to get the Polish mayo. Why? Because it's just better. Okay. She's really good at saving money. I don't know how she does it. And I don't know if that's a cultural thing or if that's a, just, you know, being a very good shopper. <laughs> I'm not quite sure about that. She'll go and she'll, you know, oh, we don't have a lot of money, but she'll still manage to find an, a bargain or still find something and still get, a, like, a really good dress or a really good quality dress, like in Calvin Klein, whatever, or something. I really enjoy the culture and I really enjoy, you know, just being around it and learning more about it. She's always supportive and enthusiastic about, you got to see this Polish movie. This is a really great movie. Or you got to listen to uh, Chopin because he was, you know, really famous over here, John Paul II. And it's all these, she's really enthusiastic about like the history and the culture and the trends of what's going on. She's always encouraging me to learn more about it. She's always showing me new aspects of Poland that I never really saw. Do you think we're obsessed with Poland? I don't know if I'd say obsessed, but I think Polish people like from Poland have a lot of pride in it because Poland has so much rich history. So I think it's I think it's just more of the pride than anything else. Here, I think because we have so much diversity and so much thing, you kind of lose that sense of Canadian pride because everybody has their own cultural pride. But in Poland, it's really 
like apparent. But you you are studying Polish, right? Trying to. Right now, I'm preoccupied with some other classes that I have to take, but. Uh, she's trying to help me every once in a while. I'm trying to talk to her mom a little bit more in Polish, so it's coming along very slowly. She's always telling me, "Oh, you sound so cute," because I don't know how to conjugate anything. So she's like, "It sounds like I'm like a three-year-old boy." It's like, "Oh, great." <laughs> is it very difficult? Is Polish very difficult for you? It is. It's a lot of the ums and ums, and just you know, I can read it a lot better than I can speak it. I'm trying to imitate her, and it just. Doesn't work out as well as I'd hoped because she's like, huh? In the last episode of Polcast, we presented to you Gabriela Mai, a Canadian-Polish photographer who authored a very special photo book, Almond Garden, published last year, a result of her five years of work and unique access to women's prisons in Afghanistan. It was listed in Time magazine as one of the best photo books of the year and featured on the BBC, CNN, and the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Vice, Huffington Post, Le Figaro, and on NPR, among others. Last week, you heard part of my interview with Gabriela Mai, in which she told us how she got to work on this project and what it involved. Today, part two, in which we learn about what's going on in these prisons. We reached Gabriela in Dubai. So, what did you find? How did the reality compare to your expectations? What was shocking to me was the fact that. Most of these women were in this prison for something called moral crime. So they had been raped. They um, had gotten involved in a relationship with a man that they wanted to be with, but their families didn't want them to be with. They had run away from home, for example, from their fathers or husbands' homes where they were where they were experiencing abuse they couldn't uh, withstand anymore, and were arrested for this idea of moral crimes and then incarcerated. Most of the the population of this prison um, are women who are who are victims that have been transformed through this legal system into criminals, into incarcerated women. And that was ultimately what I was interested in learning more about, in in documenting and in recording in the voices of the women that I was meeting. Did you did you manage to get real sincere conversations with these women? Were you always supervised? Well, I'll tell you the the visits ranged. They ranged from you know very short half hour visits where I had a guard on either side, and you know definitely a sense that the women were answering questions sort of you know in a very sort of yes no kind of manner because they didn't want to disclose too much more in front of the guards. Uh, all the way to, you know, to visits where I was completely left alone. You know, the guards had no interest in me, no interest in what I was really doing. I always traveled a lot with an interpreter, a young woman, university student. We weren't a threatening presence, you know. There weren't any big cameras. There weren't any big lights. There wasn't any sort of a military or security detail or, or escort. In many cases, uh, we were completely left alone, and that, of course, was great. You know, that was great, too, when those conversations really got going. 
you know, one woman would start to speak. Pretty much always I was sitting on the ground, you know, cross-legged on the floor with whoever I was speaking to. And then another woman would join and another, you know, I have these wonderful memories of these groups of like 20-something women and everybody in a conversation together and very candid and, you know, laughter and tears and kind of everything in between. But that definitely came out of the, the time commitment that was put towards this project. I think if I had, you know, visited once or twice, I would have never have had that kind of access to the, the kind of the real stories of these women's lives. Do they feel that they're victims or have they more or less accepted that this is what it's all about in their country? There were numerous, numerous women I met who were deeply traumatized by the experiences they had had in their life and their modus operandi was very much uh, tethered to a basic psychological survival, right? Kind of keeping it together, being able to do the bare minimum, keep their, their kids afloat, but um, struggling not just with their own personal experiences, but sort of with the collective experience, right? I mean, to be an Afghan woman who's, you know, who's my age, who's 35 years old, is some is to be a person who's never known a country at peace, right? You, you've, you, you have known war your whole life. Everybody you know has known that war their whole life. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of loss, a tremendous amount of tragedy. But that all being said... Uh, by no means are all of the women in Afghanistan, the women that I met in these prisons, victims and women who have kind of given up hope. There are a lot of young women that I met who are uh, very angry at the way that their lives are in comparison to the lives of other women in the world that they know about through social media, through the way that information travels. I mean, it's, you live in a very connected world. The information about all the different kinds of lives that there are and all of the different opportunities that exist travels wide and far. So I, for a lot of these women there was the sense that, you know, it's different in other places and we know that and that is enraging. There was also something that I heard uh, absolutely echoed over and over throughout the country and that was this desire for education. Even amongst uh, groups of women who are in many cases from uh, socioeconomically depressed backgrounds and who are illiterate in many cases. There is this sense that education holds some kind of a power to a better life and definitely a life of some kind of empowerment for women. So, you know, these girls talked about uh, for their daughters what they wanted. You know, they wanted them to have an education, not a husband, not a marriage. They wanted education. Uh, many of them talked about when they were to be released from prison. That is what they wanted. They didn't want to get married and continue this life. Um, within a conventional family Afghan structure, they wanted to pursue education so that they could have more power and control over their own lives. These women I met collectively as a group taught me so much about courage, you know, and not about courage in the sense that we know it and understand it from this Western perspective, where it's this dramatic singular act as embodied in the kind of um, Hollywood film climax, but courage as having power and the kind of the perseverance and the hope to get up every day when there is no hope that seems to be left in your world. So, you know, these women in most cases feel that they will be killed when they leave the prison because they've brought so much shame to their families. That's the perception that uh, many of them believe that they'll be, they'll be found out and when they are, that their families will kill them. You know, they live in difficult conditions within the prison and they've lived lives of tremendous suffering, you know, but and within that configuration, they are still getting up in the morning, they're taking care of their kids, in many cases, helping one another, in some cases, holding on to this, this hope of a better future that they believe there is a chance that they're going to get to. That, to me, was deeply impactful. You know, it's not about the glory and the applause and everybody looking at you and saying, you know, wow, what you did was so courageous. It's about persevering, you know, in the face of the greatest challenges without anybody noticing or tipping a hat to you. 
Now, there are kids there, right? There are children with those women until a certain age. What is the age when they take the kids away? Well, like with many things in Afghanistan, there's no one uh, pinpointed number, you know, in terms of the kids. So different prisons kind of have different approaches, depends on the warden, depends on the director, depends on uh, what the woman's situation is. You know, does she have somebody from her family who's going to come and take the kid? Is there um, like a child uh, center, sort of an orphanage type facility available or not? So it really depends, but the, the age sort of generally is about between like seven and nine. In some cases, there's a change in the administration of the prison, you know, one director changes for another, and all the kids are removed regardless of the age. Some of them, like I said, end up with families, some of them with in these kind of uh, facilities for kids, which are very limited, and a lot of them just end up on the street. And I think ending up on the street is a very grim sentence for, for a small child, uh, even though there are, there are a lot of kids surviving on the street in Afghanistan. What I witnessed firsthand was, you know, very distraught women who had had their children removed from them. Some of these women have given birth in the prison, so they've had the child with them ever since they've been in, in the prison. And then at a certain age, the child is removed, you know, usually by some kind of force. I think it's a rare mother who, who gives up her child willingly, right? So so there's that added layer of the, the, the stress and the trauma that a lot of these women are dealing with. But with the country being in the situation that it is, in some weird, perverse almost way, that place may be a safe haven for these women. Absolutely. That, that was something that was surprising to me when I first heard the words uttered from the first word, woman that I heard these words from. But then it was, it was again, it was one of these stories that I heard um, repeated over and over throughout the country. And it was a story about hoping to, to be able to stay in the prison for as long as possible. Which if you think, you know, if you think about that being your respite and that being the, the, the asylum, that the, the, the prison is where, is where you feel the safest and actually, you know, you can finally get a break from, from the troubles you've been dealing with your whole life. Okay, what's the aftermath of this whole thing? There's some sort of involvement on your part in the cause of Afghani women, right? It became a very personal project for me and, the, you know, the relationships with some of these women were ones that I, I, I felt very protective of. You know, you have to believe that that this is going to have some kind of an impact. Otherwise, you know, otherwise spending five years traveling around Afghanistan, you know, um, in the back of a beat up old Toyota Corolla in a, in a burqa, right? Kind of putting myself in these situations that were definitely risky, to say the least, would not have made much sense. I mean, this book is, it's a record. It's a record of the lives of the women who have participated in this project. And it's a record that I'm very, uh, I'm very happy is something that, you know, we can together, we're kind of filing with history, right? So, you know, in 200 years, somebody will pick up a copy of this book and for a moment, you know, pause on one of these women's faces and, 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 and contemplate the, the fact that this person had a, had a whole kind of cosmos within them. All of the women that are featured in this book are women who, who deserve to, to be remembered by history in, in however small of a way it ends up. And then on the more kind of practical uh, level, right? What does this mean for these women today? What does it mean for women who are incarcerated in Afghanistan for moral crimes? The book is associated with an organization called Women for Afghan Women, which is a wonderful organization that uh, it uh, provides pro bono legal support for a lot of incarcerated women and runs a system of shelters in Afghanistan for women who are coming out of the prisons who need a place to shelter uh, because they have nowhere else to go. 
And the book is also it's uh, it's a, a part of a larger dossier, so it's been it's in the uh, the hands of larger human rights watch organizations that are negotiating on behalf of Afghan women on a kind of on a legislative level, on a policy level, um, directly with the Afghan government. When we talk about famous polls, we usually think about polls we are proud of. But there were also some on the other end of the spectrum, the notorious ones. Here are two examples. Felix Dzerzhinsky, the founder of Secret Service in Soviet Russia. Yes, the first officer of KGB came from Polish aristocratic family of the Sulima coat of arms. As a child before taking to a Marxist ideology, Young Felix considered becoming a Jesuit priest. He didn't, and then became known as Iron Felix. The Cheka soon became notorious for mass summer executions, performed especially during the Red Terror and the Russian Civil War. Theodore John Ted Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber, arguably the worst domestic terrorist in modern American history who was born in 1942 in Evergreen Park, Illinois, to second-generation Polish-American family. Between 1978 and 1995, Kaczynski engaged in a nationwide bombing campaign against people involved with modern technology, planting or mailing numerous homemade bombs, ultimately killing a total of three people and injuring 23 others. Thousands of Poles during the war risked their lives and endangered the lives of their families and of their neighbors to help their fellow citizens of Jewish descent avoid German Nazis atrocities. Not many people know, though, that the Polish underground state, the only such complex structure in German-occupied Europe, created a special organization called Żegota. It was the code name for the Clandestine Council for Aid to Jews, which existed between 1942 and 1945. Żegota, which Zbigniew Brzezinski called an organized effort tantamount to Schindler's List multiple the hundredfold, was the subject of a panel discussion organized at the University of Toronto by the Polish Embassy in Ottawa, the Polish Jewish Heritage Foundation, and Konstanty Reynert, Chair of Polish Studies at the History Department at the University of Toronto, Professor Piotr Wrubel, during the annual Holocaust Education Week in Toronto. The discussion was moderated by Professor Wrubel, and the members of the panel were Professor Samuel Casso, an American historian specializing in the history of Ashkenazi Jewry, professor of history at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, who served as a consultant to the Pauline Museum of the History of the Polish Jews in Warsaw, Professor Dariusz Stola, a Polish historian, writer, and professor of history at the Institute of Political Studies of the Polish Academy of Sciences, and director of Poland Museum of the History of Polish Jews in Warsaw, and Professor Joshua Zimmerman, professor of history at Yeshiva University in New York City, where he holds the Ellie and Diana Zborowski Professional Chair in Interdisciplinary Holocaust Studies.
He's the author of many books, the most recent being The Polish Underground and the Jews, 1939-1945, published last year by Cambridge University Press. Here are the introductory remarks delivered by Peter Jasem, president of the Polish Jewish Heritage Foundation. On behalf of our foundation, I wish to mention that this year marks uh, the 10th anniversary of passing of our friend and valued board member, Henry Dasko, whose absence is still greatly missed. I remember discussing with uh, him once a well-known passage from Talmud, which says, he who kills one life is considered as if he had destroyed an entire world, and therefore he who saves one life is regarded as if he had saved an entire world. The second part of the quotation that marks the Yad Vashem diplomas awarded to the righteous, including many members of the Underground Council for Aid to Jews Jagota, should be treated literally. Not only those Jews who have been personally saved by the righteous owe them their lives, but also their descendants. In the, in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, one can see a permanent photo mural of members of the Zagota Council. I looked into their eyes. So many questions crowded my mind. Last year, I looked at the single porcelain memoir photo of one of the others who helped, a young heroic woman named Janina Pogan, an underground resistance hero who provided forged documents to my father's Jewish family thanks to which they all survived. Janina, however, was later captured by Gestapo and died of Dr. Mengele's torturous medical experiments in Auschwitz-Birkenau in 1944. If not for her deeds, my father wouldn't have survived the Holocaust and I would, have, uh, I would not be speaking to you tonight. According to Talmud, I, I too owe her my life. It is a well-known and often repeated fact that nowhere in German-occupied Europe had there been as many righteous Gentiles as in Poland. It is also true that this, uh, that this was due not to some alleged moral superiority of the Polish people over all other occupied nations, but to the fact that it was here in Poland that the greatest number of Europe's Jews lived and strived for help. Had the Poles not been the largest group among their saviors, this would have been a damning indictment. And yet, this, is in no way, uh, this in no way can reduce the Poles' legitimate right to be proud of their heroism, for in each individual case, the decision to save a Jew, often a pure friend, but in many cases a perfect stranger, could, could mean death not only of the Jews' savior, but his family and sometimes neighbors as well. I trust uh, that this program will help, help us understand decisions and actions of members of Zagot and others like them, who often surrounded by indifference, at times by hostility, and in the face of the Nazi reign of terror, displayed the highest standard of human greatness. I bow my head in their memory. Thank you. Unfortunately, we cannot have you listen to the three panelists' presentations as well as the discussion and Q&A that followed because of the lack of time on our podcast. However, we encourage you to listen to all of these materials on our website, mypolcast.com.
those who have watched Roman Polanski's movie The Pianist remember the extraordinary true story of famous musician Władysław Spielmann in Warsaw during German occupation. Władysław Spielmann, a Polish-Jewish radio pianist and composer, was forced into Warsaw Ghetto, but was later separated from his family. Spielmann survived the war hiding in various locations in the ruins of Warsaw. After the war, he returned to the Polish radio and became the director of its popular music department. But very few people remember or know that in 1961 he organized the first Sopot International Song Festival. It was the biggest Polish music festival aside from the National Festival of Polish Songs in Opole, and one of the biggest song contests in Europe. Over the years, singers from over 20 European countries participated in the main competition, and the festival was always open to non-European acts, and countries like Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Mongolia, New Zealand, Nigeria, Peru, South Africa, and many others were represented in this event. In those days, foreign visitors were quite rare in Poland, so the festival was extremely popular. You've been listening to the 32nd episode of Polecast. Polkas is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. We are always curious about your reactions, comments and suggestions, also ideas for new stories. Please share them on our website, mypolcast.com. And we leave you today with recording from 1999 Sopot International Song Festival. I'm sure you will recognize the voice. Thank you for listening to Polcast. I can see it in your eyes. I can see it in your smile. You're all I've ever wanted My arms are open wide Cause you know just what to say And you know just what to do And I want to tell you so much I love you Long to see the sunlight in your hand And tell you time and time again How much I care Sometimes I feel my heart will overflow Hello I've just got to let you know Cause I wonder where you are And I 